0: Welcome, I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show.
1: And welcome back to another episode of the CISO Tradecraft Podcast. I'm G. Mark Hardy, and I'm privileged to be here with Ross Young, and we're looking forward to sharing additional information with you this week. And Ross, there's a book that you had read that you had recommended to me, and uh, I dug it out of my bookshelf this past week and realized Not only did I have it, but I already read it and highlighted it. And I'm thinking this is one of those books that you have to go back and look at from time to time, because it really gives you some insights uh, of how to deal with important things at work that um, if you don't practice them on a regular basis, you could easily forget it. Of course, I haven't mentioned the name of the book. I was going to leave that to you. But uh, what are we talking about here?
0: We're talking about the book called Crucial Conversations. And it has been one of the most influential books in my career. So I don't know if many of the listeners will relate themselves uh, to me, but when I was coming through, I I came up a very technical track. And and that came easy to me. What didn't come easy to me is winning the politics and the social bureaucracies and work. And so what I found was while I had the right idea, I didn't know how to drive the right conversations to champion people to my cause. And and people kind of listened to my ideas, but I was doing things wrong. And, and it took me a lot of analysis to understand how if I just tweaked the questions I was asking and asked them a different way, it wouldn't be confrontational, it would be collaborative. and And that's what this book is really all about. How do we get to a better end state by changing the way we ask questions and talk to each other. And, and they call this crucial conversations and it can change the outcome. And it's nothing more than the language we use, but it is so powerful. So let's, let's talk about a little bit more from the lessons and, and see how perhaps some of you can go on the same journey that I did and, and get to a better state.
1: Yeah, Ross, good point. I mean, I was interested because I said I was rereading the book this past week. And what occurred to me, as I'm looking at some of these methodologies as ideas and things like that are conversations that I've had with others that would probably classify as a crucial conversation, which I'll define in a moment, uh, that didn't go the way I want them to go. And it's like, Man, if I'd only just kind of remembered this stuff at that particular time. Uh, and so, what we want to share with you now is kind of an overview, kind of give you a feel for how this can work. And again, uh, a suggestion that this could be added to your professional skill set to improve uh, both the outcomes that you're trying to generate, as well as perhaps even the trajectory of your career. So, a crucial conversation. If we listen to what the authors suggest, They say there are three criteria which create the concept of a conversation being crucial. Number one, everybody has a different opinion. If you're both going into the conversation in agreement, then it's not really a crucial conversation. It's like, hey, we're going to the movies tonight, right? Yeah, sure. Let's go. That's not a crucial conversation. But the opinions are going to be different. Number two, it's higher stakes. This is not... What do you want for dinner? Um, well, I want chicken. Well, I want meatloaf. Okay, that's not high stakes. You may have different opinions, but it's not high enough stakes. And then the third one, and this is kind of important for us to recognize, particularly if you're kind of like me, in the left-brained, uh, more of a logical thinker, is that emotions are running high. And so the thing is with the emotions that causes people to then. Act and respond very, very differently in what we're doing, and so what we find out is you take a moment and think about a conversation where you had a difference of opinion with somebody. It was fairly important in terms of the topic, and then things got heated up emotionally fairly quickly. Because if you think about it, emotions really kind of don't help us. The old fight or flight mentality comes about when. We feel cornered when we feel threatened, when something has caused us to have some sort of a duress. And when you think about it, if you're going to have an adrenaline response, which is kind of physiologically what happens, uh, what does that mean? Well, biologically, it means that they're having more blood available to, let's say, your 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 legs, if you need to run, maybe your arms, if you got to go punch your way out of a situation, and therefore probably less blood to your brain, which is the part we kind of need to solve the problem. So it turns out that we don't really do a good job organically of dealing with what are called these crucial conversations. We tend to jump to an emotional response and that emotional response then causes people to respond in ways that um, respectfully do not lend themselves to a mutually advantageous solution. That is to say, we don't optimize. Um, So
0: an example of of what these may be is maybe you have a conversation once a year when you're doing promotions, Mm -hmm. right? That's a really high stake one because that's people's livelihood, right? Another one may be once a year, you're knocking out what your annual budget is going to be for a cyber department. You really want to get that right because you got to wait all next year for funding. So some of those high stake ones that that G Mark just mentioned are very common that you you, you have those in, in their, their once in a year time conversation, but there's enough of those sorts of things that you wanna be able to get good at this skill.
1: Yeah, and, I, and so what we find then is that, you know, before we get into any techniques and things like that, let's think a little bit about kind of the, the theory thereof. And it turns out that when do you get better decisions? What are the preconditions for having outcomes that we think are superior to what we might just figure out on our own? And one of them would be, if you will, having, well, better information available, suggesting that if we increase the pool of information available to everybody, that we have more to choose from, much in the way that if you take a look at negotiation strategies, a type of strategy where everybody is distributive, I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose, suggests that it's all about uh, victory as compared to an integrative type of negotiating strategy, which says, hey, let's try to come up with a better solution. Let's add more things into the conversation that might not have been part of it. And then as a result, we can end up with a better outcome than either one of us might have initially proposed. So it sounds great. It sounds wonderful in principle. uh, But I guess the question is, can this of course really work? All right. And so one of the things that we find out is that if we have information, we could potentially make a better decision. All right. It seems like a reasonable choice, but how do we keep emotions from being involved? How do we keep the subjective opinions that cause people to try to uh, push one way versus another. Uh, How do we keep our own emotions in check? Uh, Because we find out that we end up being, well, kind of very, very defensive. And so, first of all, let's think about uh, what could cause problems in a conversation. Ross, what do you think, for example, if you're talking about that annual discussion with an employee about promotability and uh, the person you perhaps feel has not met those requirements. And of course, you're looking out for the interests of the organization, but yet you don't want this person to totally tune you out and go bad attitude on you. So that's, I think, an outstanding example of what would be classified as a crucial conversation. And remember those three different criteria, the opinions are different, I should be promoted, you need more development. The stakes are high, wow, I could make more money or he might quit and emotions run high because depending upon the people you're dealing with, the emotions could kick in very quickly. So um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, what's a traditional approach? Let's ignore for a moment, the concepts of crucial conversations. How do you think this type of conversation might go?
0: So let's say it's the, the year end, and you have an employee, and, and you're the boss in this example, that you feel has been mediocre, not, not worth firing, but not at the top of his, his or her game. And the employee, he or she has felt like they've been busting their butt. You know, they're working 50-hour weeks, and they think they're ready for their promotion because they've been in the job, you know, three to five years, and, and they feel like their time is due. So you have those disparate opinions and the employee is going to come in and say, look at all these things that I have done. I've been busy. I've been, you know, making these things out and you're not going to find anybody else who can do 50 hours a week consistently and deliver what I've been doing versus the boss may take the focus of it's not that you've been busy. It's have you been effective in your role? I needed these things accomplished. And while you may have been busy doing a hundred things, the three things I really needed from you to deliver have not been delivered. And and I think that's a conversation that you have to have Mm and talking about just because you're busy may not be any productive, right? And then the
1: traditional, or what we expect to be the pushback is, well, what do you mean about that? Well, first of all, why are you surprising me with some of these deliverables that we didn't discuss that we could have had done in advance? And by the way, I did work really hard on all this stuff. And all of a sudden, what's happened? The person has immediately gone defensive. And now the emotions have surfaced very quickly, and they're not necessarily going to help you get to a resolution. And so now we got to talk this person off the edge. And we go off track. And so the danger, I think, with any of these conversations that would qualify as a crucial conversation is they're so easy to be taken off the track, either by ourselves or by others, simply because there's not an understanding that had been developed by the thousands of hours of research by these authors of how to do so. And one of the things that they talk about which is to understand the us, is to first get very, very clear on me. And, and I thought that was kind of surprising at first when I was reading it I said, well, what do you mean start with me? Don't I wanna start with the other person's point of view? And they said, no, you wanna make sure that your motives are well understood and you stay focused on those. Because what's happening is you are getting pulled in different directions by other people. And so as a result, by getting pulled off of your agenda, if you will, by getting pulled off of the conversation that you wanted to have, what happens is, is you end up fighting different battles. And so we've had things like straw man arguments where somebody will bring something up or they'll put a point themselves in different areas. But typically, often what happens is what? When you're in a position where you're dealing with somebody who has either some strong opinions or things start to get a little bit heated, what do we want to do? One of the things we want to do is, well, we want to win, right? It's all about winning this conversation. By golly, I'm the boss and I'm in charge and I don't want my authority challenged because I could look weak. And so all of a sudden, this desire to win pushes us away from the concept of having a meaningful dialogue. And so instead of trying to correct any potential mistakes that were in the initial interpretation of the conversation... We become all about winning and not always do we want to go about winning. Sometimes it becomes a little bit more personal than that. We want to see that other person punished. We want to see them suffer. We want to go ahead and see something happen. And so as a result, what happens is it gets very, very awkward in that position where you get people that are going to go, uh, well, they raised some issue and you say, well, how dare you speak up about something like that? You know, that's probably going to cost you. And that wasn't the issue. And so what happens when somebody brings you to a point where you're ready to pull off from your core objective? What do you think is the right approach?
0: I think we have to take a step back and say, is the relationship the most important or is being in the right the most important? And 99% of the time, it's about the relationship. Now, there's gonna be some really hard talks you have to deliver where you're gonna take a hit in the relationship during this conversation, right? When you're gonna tell them, hey, I think you've done something wrong, and, and you wanna, you're gonna tell them some very hard things to hear. And, but hopefully you're doing it in a way they wanna hear it and they'll respect you and still value the relationship. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're focused on, hey, no, you're stupid, hey, you need to understand this and, and just really argumentative, interrogative language, that's going to put people on the defensive immediately compared to how do I strengthen the relationship through this conversation?
1: And so it's interesting is that if we are able to stay focused instead of getting pulled off a target, then that's our kind of our first step. Of course, the danger of staying focused then is that Sometimes in the heat of an argument, we get trapped into what the authors talk about as the fool's choice, which is basically trying to solve a more complex problem than the issue that you're looking about. That is to say, we care about the issue at hand, but then we care about the relationship and we care about the future of this and, 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 and. And so what happens then is you often end up with a situation where you really can choose from bad and worse. Uh, there is no good decision opportunity coming out there because of the lack of dialogue, the lack of meaningful conversations. And so there's a suggestion that says, first of all, clarify what it is that you really want and then clarify what you really do not want. Okay. So I want to have a conversation with this employee about Promotion, And what I don't want is for it to devolve into an argument or a threat from either side to quit, to be fired, to leave, etc. Now, that's your more complex question to solve. Instead of you can do either or, put an and in there. I want to have a conversation that focuses on the employee's performance for this period of time, and it does not result in arguments, in emotional name calling or threats. Now that's a bigger problem to solve, isn't it? But that's the right problem to solve. And so now if we do that, we avoid kind of these, these sucker answers and things such as that. And we're able to go ahead and try to frame things by keeping track of here's the issue and here's how to keep, if you will, from going off the rails. And so clarifying what you really want is upfront is very, very important. Uh, Clarifying what you do not want is perhaps equally important. And then adding the word and in there to rephrase that helps a little bit more in terms of then giving you a better problem to solve. Yeah. It's just
0: like uh, Alice in Wonderland and the white rabbit where he says, Hey, where do you want to go? And she's like, well, I don't know. Well, then it doesn't matter which path you choose, Mm -hmm. but if you do know where you want to go, you do want to have this very specific conversation to drive this very specific result or outcome, then you have to have the right questions and the right conversation to get you there.
1: Yeah. And so what happens then is that that second half of our conversation objective, that is to say, things don't turn ugly, et cetera. It's possible that never happens. You could go into what you our thinking is gonna be a crucial conversation. The other person's personally reasonable, they're rational, everything is communicated up front. You end up with a mutually satisfactory outcome and off you go. And so from that perspective, we go like, okay, that went really well. And then your book doesn't help you at all because it just happened to work out. That's more of a fantasy than anything else. Reality is what happens is at some point in time, in a lot of these situations, we have differing points of opinion it's an important matter, and people's emotions involved is there's a risk of it turning ugly, and so the longer it stays ugly, the harder it is to bring it back. So it's a little bit um, not to be, you know, condescending, but it's kind of like training your dog. Is that if you, you know, I as as I'm doing this podcast, I have a, a Pomeranian sleeping on my desk. Now, is that the right place for a, a dog to be while I'm recording a podcast? Absolutely not. But I'm guilty of not having this if you will, crucial conversation by stopping that behavior early on. So now she figures she's entitled, hey, you picked me up before, I can get picked up anytime. So let's go back to people. When things start to go a little bit off the rails, how do you notice that you're no longer in a dialogue, but your you're, people are ramping up into this emotional state? And typically, you're gonna find out that people, will have some sort of a physical signal. You might feel it yourself, tightening in your chest, kind of a little bit of a clenching on there. You get a little bit angry. Some people, depending on who they are, might start to flush a little bit. You can physically see that they're changing a little bit. Also, you might notice your emotions start to go up and things such as that. And then, then also you might just kind of observe yourself doing things, you know, yelling, pointing, it's starting to, to get hyped up and things like that. And so what she turns out then is that what makes a crucial conversation work for both parties is a sense of safety. If we go back and look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where he has some basic physiological needs, okay? You have to be able to breathe and have food and things such as that. But then the next level up is safety. If you're not safe, you're not gonna focus on anything at a higher level. If people don't feel that they're safe in a conversation, they're not going to be able to proceed in getting into the level of discussion that you want. So if you can see that somebody feels threatened, then your first order of business is to remove that sense of a lack of safety and get people to feel a little bit more calm. And so how do you know when people don't feel safe? Some get quiet, they clam up, Cross their arms. You can tell by just the body language they're tuning out. Sometimes that they kind of, uh, if they say they get angry, or they might just kind of lash out. And so, if they move either to silence or violence, then it suggests that we're probably at the incipient edge of things going very, very badly. So, have have you run into things like that before? Have you seen conversations where? all of a sudden things just aren't going the way you want to. And then pretty quickly people either start to withdraw or attack or do something like that.
0: Yeah. I've been that person, right? So I'll I'll be vulnerable that sometimes they've said, okay, here's a problem we're all struggling with. We really need good ideas to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And then I'll offer up my suggestions, my recommendations on how to do this. And then what they what I've experienced sometimes in my career is they quickly dismiss my recommendations. And, and at that point in time where I put this well-crafted idea up on the table for people to to hear and, and listen to, and they're like, oh, that's a stupid idea, right? Well, what does that make me do? It it makes me close up and be like, well, they didn't want to hear any of my ideas, screw them, you know? And, and then I just turn quiet until the end of the meeting and then I'm, I'm going to go vent to a friend and say, man, these people aren't listening to me, right? I, mm-hmm. I've done that personally, and I don't know if others have had, but I, I think that's quite common. That's an excellent
1: point. So what we find then is that, yeah, I'm guilty of it, and we all are. I mean, that's, that's part of being human. And part of the reason that we're listening to this is that we want to say, hey, this is an area where I can improve. And so one of the things you can do when you want to identify the times or the instances when things start to, as I said, kind of go off the rails a little bit, when people feel that they're not safe, is we find out that safety kind of gets threatened from one of two things. One is a lack of a mutual purpose, and the other one is kind of a lack of a mutual respect. So the first one is a lack of a mutual purpose. If, if people believe that you sort of have a malicious intent that you're actually trying to achieve something that's not helpful to them. Uh, you've got your own private agenda um, that you're not working together on a solution, but that, that's gonna put people on a defensive. Okay, are people going to trust you? Um, you can't really be manipulative in this area. You have to truly have some sort of a mutual purpose in mind if you're not, if you're there to you know, to admonish somebody or administer some punishment or whatever, that's not a crucial conversation. That is a boom, you know, it's a totally different topic area uh, like that. But here what we're looking for is again, exchange of ideas. And so what we want to do is that we have to have some way to understand how do we communicate that this is mutual? This affects you. This affects me. Your opinions, your inputs are valuable. And so now if you go ahead and you start confronting somebody's behavior like you're always late or you made us miss a deadline or whatever it's not mutual but a mutual thing might be hey we're on the same team and we've got an obligation to meet the commitment together how do you think that we can do a better job of meeting that commitment you see now we're both mutually trying to get to the same thing ultimately the behavior might need to be the thing that's addressed, but I've tried to do it in a way that suggests that I'm looking for a mutually acceptable response, not I'm right, you're wrong.
0: So one of the ways I've tried to do this in my career, and I've kind of polished it a little bit better than, than when I first started out, is we we'll identify a thing that we wanna agree upon, and then I'll kind of feign a little bit of ignorance. Mm-hmm. So, so let me give you an example of this. Security always wants the developers to patch more and fix all their vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities are are just never going to be perfect. So there's that conversation you're going to have on this, and you can go into a conversation and say, as I think about where we want to go, I think we can both agree protecting the company is critical for both of us, but I, I'm not really sure how to do it. I I I know we have these tools over here. I know your developers are doing these things, but I just don't know what we can do better to get to a better end state. What do you think on that? So what I've done in that statement right there is I've agreed upon a shared goal, and then I put them in a position of power to discover the right answer that we can both agree upon. And This has worked fantastic for me when when I use these types of examples to bring engagements and collaborations in boardrooms and other conversations.
1: And I think you've hit on an excellent point, which is really not in the book, but it's it's a key truth is that people will protect things that they help create. And that's true for pretty much anything is that if you, if they say let someone else believe it's their idea, as Ronald Reagan said, if you don't care who gets the credit, you can get a lot of work done. But the point is, is that most people are not going to disagree with something that they have come up with on their own. And so as a result, you can kind of walk them onto target. But as you had said, hey, what do you think? How can we solve this problem? When someone proposes a solution, it's assuming that it's the one you want. It's great. But what if it's, what if it's not? Uh, what, what if they're off in some other different area and you got to kind of bring them back to your area? Now, we've already talked about the goal that we've covered here about the mutual purpose. And I think you've articulated that wonderfully by saying, hey, here's what I want. And more importantly, here's what we want. But what's the other thing that keeps conversations from becoming productive? And I think it's the lack of mutual respect. If you don't have respect, you know, they often say respect is like air. If it's there, you don't really notice it. Okay, you don't think about it, but you take it away. It's the only thing you tend to think about. And so typically a lack of respect often services at the emotional level. People then go ahead and kick in and they get their feelings. And so what happens is, is that if you're getting somebody who is being disrespectful to you, it's often because there's something that's, well, different between you and the other person. You tend not to disrespect something about yourself. And so part of the way to diffuse that is kind of to look to the things that are similar. What is it that is about you that is similar to what it is about me? And, and then instead of saying, well, you're this, you're that, I said, well, wait a minute, we both work for the same company. We're both on the same team. We're both accountable for this type of result. And see, we build up that consensus and take away that emotional targeting. And of course, it requires each of us who are trying to practice these crucial conversations to not fall into that trap of being invited into a mutual name calling or accusation type of a situation. Because at that point, things break down very quickly because the core element is having mutual trust. It has to be safe.
0: Yeah, a great example of this is think of, governments right sometimes you read in the newspapers that you know china uh, china or russia don't agree with us and we're all on all opposite sides and you know we we both have our different outcomes and objectives we're we're trying to stop but there's that shared thing where we both may agree that you know terrorism is just wrong and it's evil and we both want to stop this together so how can we partner together to stop this thing that that works to both of our benefits Mm-hmm. And what that does is it creates an opportunity for wins. And the more time you get wins with somebody where you both deliver on something together, that fosters trust. And I can go from, hey, that dirt bag I can't trust at all to, hey, we've done five things together and he's delivered each one of those that's a really good person. I know I can trust when our objectives are aligned to the same goals. Mm -hmm.
1: So what we find then is there's a couple techniques that allow us to address some of these issues with respect to mutual respect. One is of course, an apology and in a situation where you've genuinely said something or done something that you think has offended the other person, apologize for it. Now, you don't have to say, I'm so sorry that you're sensitive. I'm so sorry that your feelings are so close to the surface. That's not an apology at all. That's just throwing fire, you know, that's pouring gas on the fire, but rather someone who is, you know, feeling that uh, they have been offended by you in some way. I didn't, I'm sorry if you felt that I was being condescending. I'm sorry that if you felt it, it's not my intention at all. I value you. And, and it's very important. And then in addition to an apology, if somebody is attacking your reason for being here, we're, we're back to that promotion opportunity again, where someone says, you know, you're just here to go ahead and justify um, not promoting me because you, you just don't like me. Let's face it. And things such as that. And so the second approach, you know, it's something to apologize for now when you haven't really done anything wrong, But you can do some contrasting, which suggests that, first of all, you address the concern that suggests that someone suggests that you have a malicious purpose, and then you contrast that with your true purpose, We say, I do not have it in for you, and this is not the purpose of the conversation. The purpose of our conversation, and come right back to, remember, staying on target, goal one, is to discuss what we can do so that you're you know, qualified for your promotion, and then you can make an additional amount of money you would like to get uh, in. A, a, you know, and then of course you can go from there. You're trying to come back onto it again. And so really the most important thing is to try to defuse that argument because people get defensive and they will say, you know what, um, I'm, I'm not getting what he wanted out of this. So I'm just gonna go ahead and, and start arguing. But when you do this contrasting, notice that you're not apologizing. Those are two different things. I apologize if I have offended you in some way, if I've been a certain way. But if somebody takes issue saying, well, you're just out to get me, you don't have to apologize to say, well, I'm sorry you feel like I'm out to get you. That's, that's, you can't really do much about that. But then you contrast that and say, this is not about whether somebody's out to get you or not. That's not the purpose of the conversation. The purpose of our conversation is this, And then we come back and say, so now what we're able to do to go ahead is if they're misunderstanding what you want to talk about, use that contrasting, kind of bring it to a stop, get that person back into the conversation and try to make them feel safe about it. So So one,
0: one, one way I've done to kind of tackle that is use this word perception, right? So we can say, here were the actions that you took to make X happen. And while I believe your intent may have been good, what actually happened was you were perceived this way. And that allows a contrast to happen without attacking the individual. This is the perception of them. It may not be the reality of what happened. And when someone has the ability to reflect on how they're being perceived, which is not their desired outcome, then we can challenge that situation and get to a better outcome.
1: Right. And so what we're doing is we're creating essentially a mutual purpose, the idea that we're aligning for some side of the goal. And and the suggestion at that really comes into kind of a four-step process. First of all, as you say, you have to agree to be willing to agree. You have to commit to seeking this mutual purpose. Uh, It it has to be a a genuine feel that I'm not going to be in this conversation to win it and not in this conversation to administer punishment or pain It's to go ahead that I genuinely want to go ahead and find a way that we have a mutual purpose and then recognize that we understand what we're looking for. We're trying to figure out by. Saying, you know, why do you want this? You know, and you know, we were we were discussing previously the concept of seven whys and things such as that, where you drill down, but without digging in there, it really helps to understand what a purpose is, person's real purpose is. You know, why do you feel that way? What is it that, is, that makes you want to do that? Um, some people say, well, I you, know, you make me work on weekends. Um, I I can't work this week. I don't want to work on the week. I'm tired of putting all this extra overtime in here. I'm not appreciated. And then as you dig into it, you might find out that perhaps that particular weekend, uh, there's a family wedding this person needs to go to, but they feel uncomfortable about asking for the time. Well, there's probably ways that you can can do that. So what we do then is we commit to the mutual purpose. We recognize that purpose. Um, Ideally, invent a mutual purpose if needed. So we can come up with one ways that we can agree on something, and then be creative, do some brainstorming, uh, come up with ways that involve the other person with additional strategies, so we can come up with ways that we can come up with things that work. And at this point in time, what we've done is we're a good way into the um, the strategies that are offered by the authors to say, we've identified the problem, we have identified situations, a crucial conversation, uh, we've, we've started with they will start with the heart, as they say. Think about your perspective and others' perspectives and think about how emotions could get involved. Look for the warning signs that things are going off the rails, that somebody's either becoming physically defensive or they're shutting up, they're quiet, or they're getting aggressive, and then find ways to make it safe. When you're safe, it's okay to talk about things. And that's the hardest thing, in my opinion, is to create that environment of safety because that perception of safety is based upon the aggregate of interactions you've had with this other person for however long you've been with them or work with them. And although someone might come in and say, hey, I'm turning over a new leaf, I wanna do this or whatever, there's always a little bit of concern that you're gonna lapse back into your old style. And so being consistently able to create an environment of safety and things such as that goes a long way.
0: A lot of times the safe environments are one-on-one when you can feel safe to speak your mind and not have to worry about others in the room judging you. Now, some people don't have that and are very open, but others really have to be careful on their conversations because you, you want to praise people in public, But when you have to say some things that are really hard, that are very difficult and and maybe some performance improvement conversations, you might do that on a one-on-one so that it is a safe environment for them to speak their mind and not to feel demoralized in front of their peers. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So now that we've created a safe environment, how do we know when our emotions are getting in the way? A lot of times people feel that an emotional response is their response. That's, that's the way. I, I'm angry. I'm upset. And some people argue, well, I, ca- I can't make you angry. Only you can make yourself angry. And that, of course, creates further anger and things such as that. And so we find out then is that before we choose to respond, before we get angry, before we get frustrated, things like that, instead of just action, emotion, action, emotion, which is very reflexive and therefore doesn't give us a chance to consider it how about action and then stop and tell ourselves a little bit of story all this person is telling me that I'm an idiot but I'm not an idiot so therefore I want to argue with them okay well am I an idiot is not a valid story but I can see where the feelings are coming from and because I've been able to tell myself that if that little story even if it's a false story then they can't control us so what I'm finding then is that I'm able to kind of stop, come up with some consideration and then respond. If you look, read the books from Viktor Frankl and Frankl had wrote a book called Man's Search for a Meeting. And, and Frankl was a very interesting person. He's a psychologist, he was Jewish and he was sent to the German concentration camps during World War II. And in more than one instance, he was about one day away from, from being executed and somehow to survive. And he lived to be into his nineties actually. And what was interesting is you said, what kept him going during that ordeal was the belief that someday in the future, he would be speaking to audiences about his experience and his research. And what he had said is that the one thing that nobody can take away from you is your ability to respond to a situation. Because in between stimulus and response, there's a gap, and you own that. And someone could abuse you, they could treat you horribly, as was done back in the 1940s, up to the point where you felt your, your life was pretty much almost over. But how you chose to respond to those circumstances could not be controlled by somebody on the outside. And therein lies the tiniest you know, foothold in which you can rebuild your entire sense of self, even if everything else is taken away. Fortunately, today, we're not talking about things that extreme, but the same principle of human behavior exists. We own that little gap between stimulus and response. And so if we can stop and figure out what story are we telling ourselves as a result of this particular stimulus, someone saying something, something's doing something, and then ask ourselves: is this story actually the truth? Is I this-
0: And, and know, I think we can be a little more open with our emotions than we, we saw in the workplace a decade ago. So when somebody says something that's difficult to hear, we can verbalize that. We can say, I'm not sure if you're intending this, but when I hear this, it makes me feel this way. Mm-hmm. And, and you can be very open and transparent about these sorts of, of concepts. And being vulnerable like that really provides that safe space for someone to understand where you're coming from. And, and I think that is really important to allowing other people to not blow up or attack because they can see your feelings when you verbalize them that way.
1: Yeah, and again, all these things break down if you're dealing with a clinical sociopath, but let's hope we never have to encounter that. But yeah, and I think the vulnerability also helps a little bit in terms of believability. So for example, when we had done fishing exercises and things such as that, okay, so uh, they had done a firm wide fishing exercise and typically the next day they would publish the results. And I remember the one that had the most click throughs was I think it was three years ago in December when everybody got a phishing message that said, hey, you have a $25 iTunes gift certificate uh, from your company. Click here to redeem. And something like 28, 29 percent of the company, the security company, clicked on the link and got the (laughs) message. Well, I, I clicked on one of these links once, and it wasn't that. It was actually I'd signed up to speak at a conference up in New York City, and coincidentally, that day was that month's fishing exercise. Um, your conference agenda in New York is regular. Clicked on it, and I may have mentioned this before, but the thing was the next day, they said, congratulations, only one person clicked on the link. We had our best month ever. Well, the reason we point that out is this. When I had somebody in one of my security classes say that our Vice president has purchased a phishing package and said that anybody clicks on this, they're fired. Or anybody clicks on this, you know, they're in trouble or whatever. They made it to the point where they were basically governing with fear. And I said, that's not the way you communicate with people. You don't wanna go ahead and get everybody to be afraid of things because by being vulnerable, by being able to say, hey, look, I'm a security professional and I've even made this mistake. It helps people understand that it's not the end of the world. The point is, can you correct quickly? I had somebody in my, my current environment, I work as a CISO, and he called me up and said, hey, G-Mark, I got this message and it asked me to log in for some Microsoft document. And I did, and I put my ID and my password in there, but something just didn't feel right. And so I went ahead and took a look at it, and sure enough, it was a phishing message. It had the Rio de Janeiro picture of the login for Microsoft, but it was not at, you know, a normal address. So Quick went in there, we changed his ID, I and mean, we changed his password, He had two factor authentication anyway. And about 20 minutes later, a whole bunch of failed login attempts started hammering his system from a uh, a nation in another continent. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, And so the conditioning there was, hey, if you made a mistake, fess up to it right away and we can fix it right away rather than hide it and risk further damage. So it's that culture of being able to let people say, hey, I made a mistake. Okay, we're not going to beat you up for it. We're going to, we're going to talk about it. And let's, let's go ahead and find ways that we can prevent it from happening. Now, that was very, very specific. But it kind of gets the idea of having that culture where people can go ahead and feel that being vulnerable is okay. And it's got to start with you if you're a boss. So what type of stories do people tell when they get super defensive, when, they're, when they don't get this sense of being able to um, you know, view these stories and things such as that? Well, there's, there's three of them in particular. You could be a victim and say, oh, well, um, I'm, I am I, I, didn't do this right. I, I made a mistake. And so I it's the most noble of motives. I really meant to do this. I worked so hard and things. Now, yeah, it's, it's a story and it's meant to cover up your actions. Or you go on the attack, you make the other person a villain. And so in the villain's stories, you know, see victims talk about we're innocent villain stories. Someone else is guilty. Okay, we invent terrible motives or this person is that or then sometimes people feel helpless, they, they just can't do anything. And so therefore, the whole goal of these clever stories is to are trying to get people off the hook. Now, the whole idea is if we can make ourselves look right, and the other person look wrong, or we demonize others, uh, then we can abuse them, we can insult them, do anything we want. And therefore, you can start to see that the beginning of the slippery downward slope of this loss of safety can often begin with some of these uh, clever stories, as they call it, and things such as that. is um, compared to a useful stories, because one of the things we find out with these clever stories, I'm a victim, you're a villain, or I'm helpless, is they're incomplete. They stop at a certain point because they haven't turned all of the information out. So if someone's acting as a victim and things like that, uh, turn them into an actresses. Are you not noticing your role in the problem? Okay, what is it that you can do? What is it that you're participating? For a villain, what do you want to do? Create some sort of accountability for how we're treating others. And for the helpless, ask, you know, What do you really want? What is it that they want to get out of there? And refuse to make yourself helpless and allow other people to say, no, you're not helpless. You have an opportunity to do something. What is it you care about? Um, So, G.
0: Mark, what I think I hear you saying is there's this victim mentality of self-justification, and we need to get to the thought process of self-mastery instead of blame, how do we focus on the problem at hand? And we can do that by stating the path, speaking Mm -hmm. persuasively, and really sharing the opinions of viewpoints that allow someone to think of the end state that actually solves the problem and gets to a better long-term outcome.
1: Exactly. So getting away from the accusations and focusing on the facts. So facts are stubborn things. We've heard that saying perhaps before, but the idea is what? It's a basis on which you can develop some mutual type of understanding. And so someone says, well, he always does this, or you're always late or whatever. Stick with the fact. So um, you walked into the meeting 20 minutes late yesterday and the meeting prior to this, you were 25 minutes late. I'm not saying you're un- irresponsible. I'm not saying you're a jerk. I'm not saying, I've just stated a fact. Something that you can't argue about. Yes, I was 20 minutes late, but, and then I go into their victim story, I was caught in traffic or the villain traffic. Well, that guy gave me extra projects to do and things like that. You want to bring it back? Well, let's go back and talk about creating environment. What is it going to take to be able to allow you to be pure on time, if you will? And then again, try to kind of pull people out of these stories because the stories are all designed, but they say, okay, continue. Well, he gave me this extra work. Okay.
0: Get out of self-justification, get into mastery.
1: Yeah, exactly. And things such as that. And so facts tend not to insult. That is to say, if I say, Ross, you're micromanaging me, you're out here, you're breathing down my neck all the time. That can be viewed as an insult. But if I approach it a little bit different way and things such as that to say, Hey Ross, since we started working together last month, you've been double checking on my work about twice a day. And you've asked us view every deliverable that I have put together before it goes up to the, the client. Now, that's a statement of fact, okay? I've just recounted things like that. And so then at that point, I mentioned that to you and you may not, you, you agree with, I mean, it's factual things like, well, so what, what's your point? And then I'm able to say things such as, I am left with the impression that I'm not sure if this is a message you're trying to send to me, but I don't feel like you trust me, that, that I'm not up to the job or I'm gonna get you into trouble, is that the reason? And now what I've provided in this conversation is I've said, here's my concern. We've based it on facts. And, and then your response, if you're not, you know, that thing, it might be something like, well, the last guy I had, you know, kept sneaking out to work or whatever, and he didn't get things done, et cetera. And as a result, I'm just trying to avoid being surprised on things such as that. And so from, from approach like that, uh, you should be able to keep people focused on the issue. So we can, as you said, state your path. Um, If you've got strong opinions, make sure that you're able to go ahead and talk about it, but do it in a way where you're not shutting down the other person's opportunity to do things. All right, so if you force your opinions on somebody, then they're gonna resist you. Uh, But it doesn't mean you can't have your own opinions. When you talk about stating your path, you want to share your facts, tell your story, ask others for, for their story. And um, if you're going to go in story mode, stay in story mode. Be tentative, if you will. Don't view that as facts. You don't trust me. That's a story you're telling yourself. You're telling yourself a story that your boss doesn't trust you. You can talk tentatively. I get the feeling that you don't trust me. Could that be true? Now That's not an accusation, and that's not presented as a fact to say there's a lack of trust. It's putting out my perception, therefore. And then we're kind of making it safe, if you will, for others to go ahead and to do that.
0: Yeah, by doing that, what you're doing is giving the other party a way to save face, which Mm -hmm. is very important in the Japanese culture. But I don't think we use it as much in the US culture, which is. Hey, this is what I think is happening. This is how I'm feeling. I could be wrong. Help me, yeah. and, and and that goes a long way. It
1: it does, and and so yeah, we you know when you look at different cultures where the almost the prime directive, if you will, in cultures like that is to not trap somebody. Okay. If you look in Japanese culture, saving face is important. Americans, we need to understand not to ask direct questions like we do in the U S because culturally it's very uncomfortable. It says this report will be ready on my desk Monday morning, right? You can't say no. Um, But asking in a way that says, is there any reason that this report could not be ready by Monday? It is possible. Okay. See, is there a reason? Right could you explain what the reason might be? Um, my daughter, she is being married this weekend. We have relatives coming from all over Japan to our house. We have planning this for months. You see, you've, you've kind of backed into it. It says, so then when would it be possible for have this report ready? I could have it for you on Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday end of business. Okay, done. With, you know, that's sometimes dealing with different cultures. It's avoiding the poke, poke, poke. It says, this is gonna be on my desk Monday morning, right? Now in America or you know other cultures, it's not quite the same way. And so if we wanna get people to kind of follow us, we have to be able to, to get them to listen and we have to listen to them as well. And so if somebody is clamming up, if they're getting defensive, if they're getting emotional, some of the things we can do is um, just kind of ask them, You know, well, what are you concerned about? Is there any issue coming up? Is there anything that you're aware of that could maybe make it so we can't be ready by Monday and things such as that, okay? And then another one, we could kind of mirror their feelings and confirm them as we explore their paths and saying, what I hear you saying is this, or you look nervous, are you sure you want to do this? Uh, we could paraphrase the story, or ultimately we could kind of, if we get a total, totally blocked up, we kind of prime the pump, get a dialogue going. The whole idea though, in a crucial conversation is that at the end, we wanna be able to drive people toward some sense of action. We started with an objective. We've gone through a process where there's been a lot of curveballs, if you will, thrown at us, which causes us to potentially go off track. But if we can diffuse those effectively, we can still end up, which is where the ultimate goal is to take decisive action at the time. So that's gonna lead to results. And then at that point, we've got something that's successful.
0: Gee, Mark, I think this has been fantastic. You've, you've hit on a number of different principles from how do we get unstuck in conversations, how do we share with the heart, how do we use clear stories that allow us to state our path and make it safe for others, How do we use active listening skills to to look at others and understand the physiological body where they're closing off their conversations or opening up and leaning in? You know, all of these things is really what allow us to make more beneficial conversations.
1: Agreed. And again, what we're trying to do with this podcast is get you excited about this concept. okay, and to say, hey, invest some of your professional time in mastering these tools, get the book. They've got a website that's set up and things like that, that they offer additional training. Okay. We're not pushing that. I don't have any affiliate relationship with the authors, but we always want to share things that have worked for our careers that we think will work for your careers and uh, make you much more successful so that uh, you can become, you know, the wildly successful CISO of today or tomorrow. Uh, and uh, that would be great.
0: Excellent. Thanks again for the lessons in in this discussion. It's helpful like always. And as Admiral Grace Hopper says, change the process, lead the people. And Crucial Conversations is one way where you can lead the people to get the right answers, to get the right conversations going that change the organization and allow you to implement quality CISO tradecraft. Thank you again for being our listeners. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with others and subscribe to the podcast.
1: Take care, everyone.